Good morning. All right, settle down, everybody. <laughs> no. All right, well, let's pray before we get started. Father, I thank you once again for uh, this time, uh, for this message. Father, I pray as well that it, uh, it speaks to the hearts and minds of those who will hear. Let uh, these words be your words. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember last week, we, we took a vote and we decided that nobody here was perfect. So, so if there's any of the new folks that weren't here last week that are, that have lived a perfect life, please raise your hand. We'd like to recognize you. No. Okay. So we're still all imperfect. Good. And that's, that makes sense because the world's imperfect, right? We've all been hurt. We all have hang-ups. We all have habits, things we'd like to change about ourselves. And the interesting thing is that the steps to do so are the same, regardless of whether it's a hurt, a habit, or a hang-up. And we really kind of boiled that down, and we said the root cause of all of that is that it's our desire to control things. And the more insecure you are, the more you want to control things. You want to control your life. You want to control other people's lives. You want to control your environment. Essentially, you want to be God. Right? And we, we mentioned that... Um, Typically, that doesn't work out too well uh, when people want to do that. You want to be at the center of the universe, your own universe. And we also said that when we try to do that, it typically ends up with one or a combination of these things. You're either worn out, you're frustrated, and you're a failure because we can't be God. We can't control things. So... We've got to be able to break away from that, to break out of that mindset. <clears throat> and we've got to be able to get past this denial stage that we all find ourselves in. It's really what keeps us from moving forward into recovery, you know, is the fact that we really deny there's a problem. We sort of excuse ourselves, right? And you hear this a lot. Someone is maybe not looking good or you know, you, something seems to be wrong and you say, you ask them about it, and the response is, oh, no, really, it's no problem, I'm fine. It's not a problem, I can handle it. So we excuse ourselves, and we accuse other people. Well, you know, <clears throat> if my wife would just get her act together, then our marriage would be fine. Now, I'm not speaking personally there, so let's <laughs> be clear about that. So there's this denial thing that's going on. I saw once a lost and found ad in the paper that I think perfectly illustrates this idea of denial. It said, lost, a three-legged dog, blind in right eye, left ear missing, broken tail, recently castrated, answers to the name Lucky. <laughs> that's denial. And see, most people never will move into recovery until they're forced to move into it because there's just no other option available to them. And so God will essentially use probably three, maybe others, but at least three things to kind of force you to get past that point. He'll bring up some kind of crisis in your life. It might be illness, might be stress, you might lose your job, something like that. So crisis is one. 
Confrontation is another. That's when somebody actually cares enough about you to come to you and say, look, you're blowing it. Somebody loves you enough to confront you with the truth and to say, you're missing out. You're just about to lose your family. You're going to lose your health. You're going to lose your job. So that's confrontation. And then there's catastrophe. And I really hope that God never has to use that in your life because that's when the bottom falls out. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, relationally, you hit bottom. And the thing is that sometimes God just has to step back and let us feel the full impact of our own stupid decisions. It's like, well, you want to be God? Okay. You go right ahead and be God. Now, I, the sarcastic tone would not be God. That would be me. But you get the idea. And then, unfortunately, we reap what we sow. And we feel the full impact, and that causes a catastrophe in our own life. <clears throat> so we've been using uh, this um, acrostic with the word recovery to sort of illustrate these steps that it takes to, uh, to kind of overcome these things and to get um, to actually become a recovered person. And so uh, we said the first one is this concept of realize. And the full uh, verbiage there is to, number one, realize I'm not God. I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. So that's the realize step. Step two, uh, that's really the reality step, okay? The second step we could maybe call the hope step. Step one says I admit that I'm helpless, that I'm powerless to do anything to really change myself. Step two says there is a power, and that's the good news. There's a power that you can plug into that will handle the things that you can't handle on your own. And so the E stands for earnestly. And so the second step, the full verbiage is this. Earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to help me recover. Now this second step is based on scripture. It's Hebrews 11.6, which says this, and anyone, or, or anyone and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Okay? So there's really kind of three parts to this second step. Three things that, that sort of go into this. And the first one is this idea of acknowledge that God exists. Now I would probably venture a guess to say that most people that are here today, this isn't a problem for you. And in fact, there really aren't that many atheists, true atheists, left in the world any longer. Uh, George Gallup did a survey, I'm not sure exactly when, but I doubt this really has changed much, even if it was a while ago. And it said that 96% of the people in America say, I believe in God. And less than 2% will actually admit to being an atheist, to saying there is no God. So there's far fewer atheists today than there were 50 years ago. Well, why, why is that? Why do you think that is? Well, I think probably because we know so much more about the universe now than we did 50 years ago. 
And I think the more scientific discoveries we have, the more we find out about how this universe is put together, then fewer people are willing to kind of stick their neck out and, and go, well, you know, I think it all just happened by chance. This random accident occurred and all of this came into being. It, we were talking earlier about, you know, just look at this variety of flowers. You can see them over here. And so, you know, part of that thinking is that you've got to believe that all, and, and I mean, this is just a small, small subsection of all the flowers that are out in the world, okay? So if you believe it all happened by random chance, then you have to believe that every one of these individual flowers that look totally different from one another all had to happen by accident. And I think if you start to, th to look at it at that level, it takes more faith to not believe in a creator than it does to believe in one. And where there is a creation, there should be a creator. Where there's an effect, there's got to be a cause. And where there's a design, there must be a designer. So the real issue, I think, for most people is not, is there a God? The real issue is what kind of God is he? What's he really like? And the unfortunate thing, I think, for a lot of people <clears throat> is that we get our ideas about God uh, by thinking that he's like a parent. Okay? And that truly can be tragic. Now, it could be wonderful if you have great parents, but many don't or did not have great parents. And so if your father, for example, was aloof and unloving, then you think you tend to think that God the Father is aloof and unloving. If your parent was somebody to be feared, then you tend to think, well, I, I need to be afraid of God. If your father was abusive, then you tend to think that God was abusive. If your parent acted like they didn't really care, then you transfer that over to God as well. And so instead of God making you in his image, you make God in your, in your image of what you think he is. And so what we really need to know is what is he really like? And that's the second step in this, is to understand God's character. <clears throat> so the second step, you know, like I said, everybody or almost everyone, at least in this country, acknowledges his existence. But what's he really like? And until I know what God is really like, I'm not so sure I can trust him. It's very difficult to trust someone or something that you just don't know anything about. The good news in all of this is that God wants us to know what he's like. So he came to earth roughly 2,017 years ago in the form of a human being. He came as Jesus. And Jesus said to those 
who were with him, this is what God is like. We can know what God is like by looking at Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So if you want to know what God is like, just look in the scriptures at Jesus, and there you have it. He's the visible expression of an invisible God. And I think there's probably three things that we can really learn about God by looking at Jesus. It's three things that will help, I think, get us past these hurts, habits, and hang-ups that we have. First of all, God knows all about whatever situation it is that you're in. Now, some of you have probably had a tough week this week. Some of you probably had a tough month. A few of you probably had a tough life. But look at what the Bible says. This is Psalm 56, verse 8, and this is from the Message Translation. You've kept track of my every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. Each tear entered in your ledger, each ache written in your book. Isn't that incredible? The Bible is telling us that God knows us up close and personal. So much so that he has kept a record of the tears that you've shed. And so you might say, nobody knows the hell I'm going through in this marriage. Well, you're wrong. God does. Well, nobody knows how I'm struggling to break out of this habit. God knows. Nobody knows the depression and the fear that I'm going through. Well, God does. God is aware of your needs. And the Bible says he knows what you need before you even ask about it. He knows all about the good days you've had. He knows about the bad days you've had. He knows about all the dumb stunts you've pulled. He knows about all the foolish decisions you've made. And the amazing thing is, he still loves you. And the fact is, God is not shocked or surprised or taken aback by the sin we commit. You know, you go and you do something wrong, and God doesn't go, dang, I missed that one. He doesn't say that. He knew it was coming. He knew it was coming long before you ever even thought of doing it. He even knows why you did it, what motivated you to do it, even when you're not even sure that's yourself. He's not shocked, he's not surprised, and above all, he is not disappointed in you. He knows you thoroughly and completely. The second thing is that in addition to knowing you, he really cares about you and your situation. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14 say, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 
for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. See, God knows what we're made of, and he knows we're frail. He wants to be the father that many of us never had. A father that truly showed compassion. In John, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And there'll be people that'll say, well, how can that be? How can God love me and his love never quit? How can he love me, not, not just on good days, but on bad days, on days when I don't serve him, on days when I think I'm right but I'm wrong? How does he keep on doing that? Well, it's because his love is unconditional. His love, is, it's his character. The Bible says God is love. And so he's able to love you with an everlasting love that never ceases, that never fails, that never diminishes, that never grows tired, that never gets frustrated. The third thing is that God can change you and your situation. Now, sometimes he may change me, Sometimes he may change the situation. Sometimes he may change both. He has the power to do that. He's waiting on you to believe it. Notice something Paul said. He said, I pray that you will begin to understand how incredibly great his power is to help those who believe him the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can raise a dead relationship. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can bring a person back to health. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can free you from an addiction. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can help you close the door on the past so, the, so that those memories stop haunting you. Now, as I mentioned last week when we began this series, each week we're going to have a testimony uh, from someone. And the testimony this week is from a woman named Carrie. <clears throat> and if you think your situation is bad, um, wait until you hear what hers was. And the emphasis is on was. Carrie. Hi, my name is Carrie. I'm a believer who struggles with alcoholism and drug addiction. I would like to share how Jesus Christ gave me a second chance. I was raised in an upper middle class Christian home and attended a Christian school. My father was an alcoholic and my mother was a codependent. All through grammar school, I had a very low self-esteem and never to fit in. At the age of 13, my parents separated 
and eventually divorced. My heart was broken. I always wanted the perfect family. I soon found a crowd to fit into, drugs and alcohol. I started smoking pot on a regular basis and eventually moved into cocaine. At age 16, I met my soon-to-be husband and became pregnant. My parents, thinking that they were protecting me, lied to me and told me my pregnancy was life-threatening and that it was necessary to abort the pregnancy. I followed their instruction and I was devastated. I didn't believe in abortion and I thought a baby might fill the young void in my life. Many years later, I found out the pregnancy was normal. They said it was for my best. I lost total trust of them and anyone else. I wanted so badly to hide my feelings of loss. So I joined my boyfriend in addiction, and by 17 I was using heroin and cocaine on a regular basis. Addictions led me to a life of lies, dishonesty, secrets. At age 18, I was pregnant again, and we got married. My daughter was born a methadone baby. She had no withdrawals, but had a very first three months of life. By God's grace, she has no health problems today. Before she was born, my husband was sentenced to years in prison. Here I was, addicted to drugs, with a baby, and only feeling like a baby myself. I tried doing good, going to church, and doing right by my child, but my sinful nature took control. I never had a personal relationship with Christ. Within a year, I did what I thought was right, and signed guardianship papers. over to my in-laws and soon got a divorce. My life fell into a very dark place. I had a costly addiction on my own, lost my habit supporter, my child, and chose a life on the streets. I was in and out of rehabs. I wasn't willing, and I wasn't ready. Soon I found my addiction worse. I had to do more drugs to hide the increasing pain and loneliness. But to for this habit, I needed more money, and it wasn't easy to get. So I turned to prostitution. I had the false belief that I had redeemed control of my life and of men, but in reality, I was completely numb. As a re result of this lifestyle, I was raped. I thought I deserved it. I thought it shouldn't affect a girl like me. But the fear and brokenness never seemed to go away. In and out of jail became a way of life for me. My family would send me money, pictures, and cards. 
while I was in jail, but my heart just grew harder. I couldn't allow myself to feel any emotion. After a few years of living this lifestyle, along came Jerry, who is now my husband. He picked me up off the street one night as a customer, and later, to my surprise, he became a vessel that saved me here on earth. He set me up in an apartment and gave me everything I needed. He tried time and time again to get me clean and off of heroin, although we were both living with addictions. One day he told me that I was going to my mom's in Michigan for two, two weeks to detox or he was leaving. All this time, God had a plan. While I was in Michigan, I found out I was pregnant with my third child, which was something I wanted more than anything. I believed it would fill the loss of my other children. I finally made the decision on my own to quit using drugs. I was given a strong, beautiful baby girl. This did help fill a part of the void in my heart, but I centered my life on the little girl, and what was left unfilled, I hid with alcohol. Little did I realize and had forgotten that the only one who could fill that void fully was God. I had completely switched from one addiction to the next. I started drinking heavily, smoking pot on a daily basis, and began using prescription drugs. Jerry and I didn't drink well together. It usually always ended up in a fight, violence, or rage. I moved in and out a few times over the next two years, but God wasn't finished with Jerry and Carrie. Once again, I found myself pregnant. Jerry had five kids from his previous marriage. I had one, and we had one together. We were both heavy drinkers, and this was not what we had planned. After our son was around nine months old, I remember how unmanageable my life became. I would black out on a daily basis, not hear him cry, and I was unable to care for him in the morning. November of 1998, I left Jerry. I packed up the kids with no place to go, no money, and no plan. What a mistake that was. I was near the bottom. I was on a month-long binge of alcohol and pills. I moved back in with Jerry right before Christmas for our kids' sake. The night before Christmas Eve, I was completely out of control and irrational. I started a fight and I wanted to leave. Jerry was sober that night and said, fine, but you're not taking the kids. Believing that I was still in control, I called 911. Guess who went to jail that night? <laughs> me. No courts open, no one to bail me out, stuck on a bunk to think. I was hitting my bottom big time. For five days, I slept, cried, and prayed. I knew there was a God, and I knew I was his child, but with all the secrets of my past, I just couldn't understand how he could forgive me, let alone love me after all of this. Jerry had a restraining order issued against me to stay away from my children, and at that point I knew this was it. There was no way my sinful addiction was going to separate me from my babies again. I got out of jail, set up an apartment with the help of my mom, got my kids back, and got sober all in one week. What a way to start. I called my good friend Lori, who is going to be sharing her testimony here on Friday night which I used to party with, and asked her if she still went to her church on Friday nights to celebrate recovery. She told me yes, and she would wait for me there. 
When I came here, I felt so broken and so small, but God was watching over me. I got a sponsor that night. I remember walking in the meeting and the intense feeling of belonging. Everyone was so accepting and loving. I began working on all the secrets and painful issues of my past with people who were actually like me and understood me. I bought the Life Recovery Bible, the Celebrate Recovery Workbooks, and I joined a women's step study. Through this process, I learned to respect myself, and I forgave myself as Christ did. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it says, Haven't you learned that your body is the home of the Holy Spirit God gave you, and that he lives within you? Your own body does not belong to you, for God has bought you with a great price. So use every part of your body to give glory back to God because he owns it. I was able to allow others to love me because I started loving myself. Soon Jerry started to see a change in me. He asked what I was doing on Tuesdays and Friday nights, and so I invited him to celebrate recovery. He began a men's step study and began attending church regularly with me. After much counseling here at church, both of us now working the Celebrate Recovery program and much prayer, I knew this was God's will. I accepted his proposal to marriage, and we were married October 23, 1999. We are now raising a blended family of eight and trying our best to bring them up in a sober, loving, Christian, somewhat functional home. <laughs> there have been many obstacles put in my way through my sobriety, but through God's grace, last December 24th, I celebrated two years of sobriety. I am learning through this program how to form boundaries for healthy relationships with my family. I no longer have feelings of abandonment. I know that now that Jesus never left me, but I left him. I am not lonely anymore, and I am accepted and loved by my new family here at Celebrate Recovery. I am not saying life is perfect, but I am sober and can call on God to help me through life each day. I am now a leader of a Monday night women's step study with a wonderful co-leader, Mandy. I've been so blessed by watching God's healing grace through the women in my meetings. In Hebrews 12:1, it says, since we, have since we have such a huge crowd of men of faith watching us from the grandstands, let us strip off anything that slows us down or holds us back, and especially those sins that wrap themselves so tightly around our feet and trip us up and let us run with patience the particular race that God has set before us. God has truly honored me, and I am no longer held captive by my secrets. I have exchanged them for a team of people who love me, support me, and hold me accountable. Thank you for letting me share. Here's the point. The longer that you postpone dealing with
with your pain, the further away recovery gets from you. The longer that you keep denying it and saying, eh, it's, it's really not a big issue. I can deal with it. I can handle it. It just means that there are fewer days that you have on this earth to be all that God meant for you to be. So how do you move forward? Well, you acknowledge that God exists. You realize what he's like and that he cares and he understands. That he loves you and he wants to help you. And then you move on to the final part, which is to accept God's offer to help you. It's not, just an, it's not enough to just believe in God. Most of you do believe in God. But that hasn't taken away the hurt, has it? You've got to plug into that power, and that's more than just believing. How do I do that? How do I plug into that? Well, it's real simple. First you believe, and then you receive. First, I believe that God exists, and I believe that he does know, and he cares, and he has the power to help you, and then you receive him into your life. See, the second step of recovery involves a four-letter word. Oh, no, he's going to say a four-letter word in church. Yeah, and I challenge you to say it with me. It takes a lot of courage to say this four-letter word. Help. John Wimber is famous for saying that it's, he, he always found this to be one of the most effective prayers he could pray. God, help! <laughs> God, I need help. I need your help in my life. You see, the road to recovery is not easy. It means facing up to some problems that you haven't wanted to deal with. It means taking some risks. It means being honest. It means trusting God. But when you take this second step, then all of a sudden, your recovery is not just a matter of willpower. Because God says, I will be with you. So where are you hurting today? Are you going through some deep water? Do you feel like you're going under for the last time? Are you going through the fire right now and the heat's pretty intense? Do you think, well, I'm either going to get burned up or burned out? Do you feel like you're stuck in a rut? You just say, well, I, I just can't get the power to change. I feel powerless. Well, there is a higher power that you can plug into. And his name is Jesus. It's the name above all names. And I really invite you to open your heart and your life to him today. Take the second step. Earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to help me recover. Amen.
Well, a couple of weeks ago, we started this little segment. It's kind of an add-on, no extra charge, to the message. It's called Living by the Book. And if you kind of look at what our, you know, what we've got up on the walls, it's called the Harmony Vineyard Way. And that's really, as I like to say, it's the way we want to live. It's the way we want to do church. It's the way we believe God calls us to live. And so what I want to, what I've wanted to start doing was to really accentuate this idea. You know, and, and of course we say living by the book generally means following the rules. Well, in this case, we're talking about the book, the Bible. And how do we live by that? How do we live a naturally supernatural life? So this is it's just a short little segment. I think this is about a minute and a half, and it's just something to leave you with. And it's a little bit of a new twist on what it means to be uh, a disciple. And so this, our speaker here today is, is Diane Lehman. Welcome back to Kingdom Lifestyle. This month we're focusing on discipleship. What does it actually mean to be a disciple? And how do we actually grow disciples of Jesus? Well, today I want to focus on the concept that discipleship is a whole lot more than just filling our minds with facts or with scripture, as great as that is. But that is actually the Western educational model. You know, we learn, 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 and disciple actually means learner. But it's more than just head learning. Disciples actually do the stuff. (laughs) Why? Well, Jesus told us, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after he'd said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. We are sent as Jesus' disciples, filled up with Jesus himself, his spirit, to do exactly what he did. We're sent just as the Father sent Jesus. And so I say make doing a priority as a disciple, because disciples do. Go, live Jesus today. Go ahead and start. Well, as I tell the church every week, this really is the, uh, this is your time, in essence, in the service. Uh, if I could get some of the folks who are released to pray to come up. And so I invite you to, uh, to you know, if there's something that you need to, need prayer for, then come up and, and see one of these people that are standing around. Uh, they would love to pray for whatever it is that you're dealing with, whether it's a physical thing, a, an emotional thing, a job thing. They're the folks that are willing to do the stuff that Jesus did. If you just want to hang out and worship, Lainey's going to play for a while, and you're free to just sit there and enjoy the music and, and worship God in your own way. And if, you need, if you're hungry and you need to go get something to eat or just need to leave and get on with your day, that's fine too. Right? This is your time. Um, so free to choose to do whatever you feel you need to do or have to do. So I'm going to pray a blessing on us and then we'll end the service and everyone can go about their day. So Lord God, 
Just cry out help. And I can say that, I think, on behalf of all of us because we've already copped to the fact that we're all not perfect. And so there's some area of our lives that we need help with. It may be big, it may be small, but it's something that we can't deal with on our own. And so, Lord, we just ask for your help. We receive your help. Bless each person here, Lord. Bless them as they leave this place to go out into a world that may acknowledge your existence, but doesn't really believe that you can do all of the things that you say you can. So help us, Lord, to be the link between what they think and what they actually can see. Put people in our paths that we can interact with, whether it's just a word of encouragement, a touch, or prayer for something that seems impossible. And in all that we accomplish in your name, we will give thanks to you, we will give praise to you, we will give honor and glory to you. For it is in no way anything that we do, but simply you working through us. Bless all these, your people, Father. Touch their hearts, touch their lives, and let them move forward and be a blessing to others. And in doing so, we give you all of the praise and honor and glory. And we ask all of this now in Jesus' name.